Patience is a virtue. Not right now it isn't. Nothing says romance like a gift of a kidnapped, injured woman. Life finds a way. So, pretty much touch anything and you get your head chopped off. I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I gotta tell you, Mason, I'm kind of nervous about this one. I think that's entirely fair. Not only is it a movie that a lot of people love and have a lot of connections to, it is also our season finale. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's cause for some celebration, but we're giving ourselves a pretty hard task as well. We make light of a lot of movies. We have fun with a lot of movies. This one feels kind of momentous. It does. I mean, there's only so far we could go without digging into these movies, you know? Right. And it really is kind of hilarious that this movie and its sequels are my favorite adventure movies. And Mm -hmm. I should be excited, but I'm actually kind of terrified. Because it's not just Mm -hmm. me. It's like everyone who is an adventure movie fan would list at least one of these movies in their top favorites. Yeah. I think that's a pretty fair bet. I think so. And for me, this one is my favorite. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with Dave about this the other day, and it's a pretty close call with Last Crusade, but I think this one. I like him being independent. I like the introduction, the tone of introducing the character, of learning about the character. So I think for me, this is my favorite of the Indiana Jones movies, which therefore makes it my favorite adventure movie. And that's not an uncommon opinion. And... If I fuck this up, (laughs) you know? It's going to be on the record once it's published to the internet. You can't take any of it back. Lance can't edit out anything that we say that we want to retract later. Well, you know, if I get some (laughs) detail wrong or if there's a trivia fact that I don't know that I should have known. See you tomorrow, Indiana Jones. But also, I don't know, maybe it's just the mantle. It's the mantle of greatness, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. If nothing else, we have committed to doing this, and so we're going to get through it. But I agree with you about this probably being my favorite Indiana Jones film as well, partially because of what I discussed in Uncharted, where we're introduced to a very human character, you know, somebody that has flaws, that is older and isn't just like this superhero. They're sometimes making it up as they go. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. And you get to see that. And there are some really wonderful side characters as well that we get to meet. So this is really, really a great introduction to the series, and I think why it set the tone for the sequels, which we also hold in very high regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, I think for myself, this was my introduction to a lot of the parts of filmmaking I enjoy. Just as a young kid, there were so many elements of these movies, and especially this movie, that I was just like, oh, that's cool. Even now, you know, one of the things that jumps to mind first is just that opening shot of the mountain kind of coming into the Paramount logo. Mm-hmm. Just that sort of transition and being a little kid like, ooh, that's slick, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I think that it introduced me to a lot of the cool things that you can do in movie making. Mm-hmm. It probably was the first time I had a crush on a movie character. It was probably the same for me, too. (laughs) Just not the same person, I don't think. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly... I don't know. Listen, there's Harrison Ford. There's Karen Allen. There are a lot of people to love in this movie. But that crush 
multi-directional crush <laughs> kind of evolved into you know there's a quote that I really really love from the of course early days of Hollywood film actress Mae West and she said be the man you want to marry mm. which when I first heard that I was like you know I think that's kind of what I've been experiencing is like some of this admiration of people especially of characters like Indiana Jones is really just that I want to be them and it's still okay to have a crush on him. But I think part of what was driving that for me was like, oh, I want to be that. Yeah. And, and emotions and love. Okay. <laughs> I started with emotions. Emotions. Like, all right. Chill, bro. <laughs> emotions. <laughs> Let's just talk about emotions. emotions. <laughs> that's what this podcast is about. Maybe that's the title for the episode. Emotions. Emotions. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny, though, because emotions kind of do get jumbled up sometimes and mm -hmm. it is very easy to confuse those things yeah am i in love with indiana jones do i want to be indiana jones i have no loyalty to jones porque no los dos you know porque no los dos yeah exactly <laughs> exactly i mean honestly that <laughs> i want to be indiana jones and be in a romantic relationship with myself thank you is that too much to ask <laughs> that's too much to ask <laughs> yeah karen allen can come too Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's just so much to love here. And I mean, who doesn't want to go on adventures? I'm coming with you, Jones. And this is like the archetypical proxy adventure movie. If you had a bingo card for everything that makes an adventure movie an adventure movie, this is you'd have a full card. Yeah, the bingo card has this movie poster. That's the paper it's printed on. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, I mean, within this series, the only piece that maybe like fully competes with this for me personally is the Venice part of Last Crusade. I love it. Yep. We're bashing holes in the floor. We've got the library stamp, blah, blah, blah. So like that comes close. But in this one, oh, you get John Reese davies Asala, you get Egypt, you get the monkey, you get the basket scene, you get Karen Allen's cute freckles. Mm -hmm. You get the opening scene and, you, oh, such a good villain. <laughs> I think if we let ourselves go for too long, we're going to just describe every the shot movie? in the movie. Yeah. So at some point, we'll need to stop ourselves. Not yet, because, like, there's still a lot more <laughs> to talk about. Next time, Indiana Jones, it'll take more than children to save you. But yeah, I think we both know this movie pretty well or yes. so well that we could just go shot for shot yes shot for shot with karen <laughs> allen <laughs> she is quite the drinker and it'll be interesting to watch that scene again also with priscilla in mind now oh right oh god i love it i love it oh lord i'm having a breakdown i, <laughs> I almost feel like with this episode because we know this movie so well our audience very likely knows this movie extremely well, too. Mm -hmm. That I kind of want to keep this first part shorter and just, like, dive into the movie. They want you to go for it. No, that's true. Because our memories of this, it's hard to define kind of, like, what came first, you know, and where it all started. Because I don't really remember it's something that feels like it's always existed in my brain. Yes, exactly. And now we've seen it so many times and like those pathways have been traveled so often that I'm not even sure, <laughs> we're getting existential here, you know, like I'm not even sure what's real. <laughs> what is real? There are so many things that we could go into up top. I think we could probably fill an entire episode just spitballing about this movie. I was actually thinking about this earlier. 
if we wanted to dive deeply into this and actually do it justice, it might take four or five episodes. Yeah. Oh, man. And that's how crazy good and crazy complex and crazy nuanced it is. It feels like there's always something to talk about. Mm -hmm. And in the format that we've chosen for this podcast, you know, the intro, the movie watch, the deep dive, we're never going to have time to talk about it all. We're only ever going to be able to pick and choose the parts that we think are worth talking about. And that may not be the plot summary. Mm -hmm. Since we have this understanding or this kind of expectation that listeners have seen this movie as well, that may not be the type of thing that we want to even talk about by the end. We may be way off the rails. I'm sure we will. Well, I mean, there's no way this can be comprehensive. And that's come up with a couple of other movies. Like, looking back at the Mummy episode, I'm kind of embarrassed at how little I actually talked about Evie, even though Mm. she is, like, the absolute core and glorious heroine of that film. And part of it is just because it's like, okay, well, I'm going to set this huge piece aside and talk about little pieces, and I'll come back to, you know? So I feel like you could so easily do that. So this is just going to end up being a specific experience of this film, which is great, you know? That's true. So given how iconic, influential, every big word that I can think of, you know, this movie is both generally and for us personally, obviously for anybody who's a fan of adventure movies, I feel like we should really dive into the movie. But what I do want to do before that is, Mason, when you look back in your memory about this movie, I'm sure that there are shots and moments, sequences, whatever it is, that are just like the thing that pops into your brain. And I kind of want to know what those things are. On the index card for this movie in your mind, what are the images? Okay, that's actually a great question. It's going to be difficult to narrow it down to... Just Stream a of few. consciousness. Just okay. Yeah, give us um, the shot of Harrison Ford walking back and forth across the sun going down, mm-hmm. you know, while they're digging. The shot of him with the desert garb holding the staff in alignment, you know, the ray of yeah. light coming down, kind of burning the screen white. And I don't know, like, it's like the magnificently lit shots that I think of most. I don't know why that's coming up, but what are some other ones? I mean, the first time that we meet Marion, it was love at first sight. Like, it really was. Yeah. Just the way that she carries herself and the way that she talks to Indy, it's very adversarial, but you know that there's, you know, some playfulness to it. That type of thing. Also, the scene, this is not in chronological order at all. That's okay. But, you know, the scene where he's teaching and the students are all clearly just in there <laughs> because they have a crush on him. Relatable. The girl with the love you eyes. <laughs> I could go on and on and on. The shot at the end where they're taking the Ark of the Covenant into this government facility where we see, oh, like, yeah. oh the scale of this it. has happened time and time again. What other artifacts has the government recovered and put into a box and sealed away forever? I don't know, man. I'm just gushing right now, and I apologize, but... I get it. I, I could keep going. <laughs> I get it. I mean, and you know what's so fantastic about that answer is that while I love all of those shots and... We would be hard-pressed to find a shot in this movie that I don't like. Though I will try, because I feel like it's only fair. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'll be keeping an eye out. Like, at some point during our watch of the movie, I'll be like, that one's not so great. But for me, the ones that jump out are all different. Entirely different shots. Interesting, okay. Yeah. Okay. I do really love that shot of him pacing back and forth 
as they're excavating kind of at dusk. Mm -hmm. But the first one that comes to mind for me is the shot after he thinks that Marion has died and he's just in that little bar and he has the monkey on his shoulder. And then the next one I think of is there's a shot through a ceiling fan Mm -hmm. after the monkey has eaten the poison date. And both of those shots are very noir type Mm -hmm. shots. So I'm not sure why that's the direction that my mind goes. Then the next thing I think of after that really is I don't even know where exactly it is. I think we probably get a lot of shots like this, but I really love Karen Allen's freckles over her Mm -hmm. nose. And there are so many cute shots of her just kind of like looking up and you get this. You mentioned how fantastic she is as a character. And for some reason, as you were describing that, my first thought was that she's kind of like an otter. Like, she's very fierce and playful and kind of warm. Interesting. But definitely fierce. <laughs> and I, I love, do otter. love otters. Part of what I love about them, though, is that they are both kind of playful and bitey. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, she'll take a piece out of you, but she'll look cute doing it. Yep. Oh, gosh, what else? The first jungle scenes are fantastic. I think the running to get into the plane or just getting into the plane part with the snake there mm-hmm. and everything is fun. The dust um, flying off him as he yes. runs at full sprint towards the plane. Yeah. 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 The scene at the end where they're coming out of the, I don't know, it looks like a courthouse type building, but it's where they went to meet with those guys and find out kind of what happened. You know, and they're both really nicely dressed and he's kind yeah. of depressed with his hands in his pocket and she like tips his hat up and she's like, you know, a drink. <laughs> like yeah. that shot. For some reason, the shots that I love are very inspired by noir movies. They're very inspired by pulp novels, which are of that same kind of era and aesthetic. Mm -hmm. So those are the ones for me. That's really interesting. And the inverse just happened for me because I love all of those shots too. It's just that they weren't the ones that first came to mind. And I'm really interested because if we were able to do that as two people who love and have seen this movie time and time again... I'm sure that everyone in the audience has their own places where they have met this movie and Mm -hmm. shots that they identify with and that come to mind first. And they're probably very different. Yeah. Oh, and you know, it's another good one. I don't know why this shot in particular, but there's just something about this moment. So after they're escaping and they're on the boat where the captain is like helping them hide. Mm -hmm. So at first he's just trying to hide them and then they kind of get caught. And so he brings them up on the deck and he's sort of pretending that he's trafficking her, that he's taking. Mm -hmm. And there's the shot where he like takes part of her hair and kind of either smells it or kind of like touches it a little bit kind of on his face. And I always found that shot and that scene to be so compelling because he's taking care of them by playing this other character so well. And there's something kind of like, ooh, you know, about Mm -hmm. that. Like, you know, he's been in that world, but he's doing the right thing by them. But you also know that that means he's been exposed to a lot of dark shit and you're kind of seeing it. And so I always thought that moment was very riveting or that whole sequence, that whole scene and extended sequence. Great point. Also, the silky dress is really pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we need to stop ourselves. Okay, see, this is what I was saying. We're doing exactly what we said we didn't want to do. And describing every single scene. (laughs) Before we get ourselves into any more trouble, what do you think about finally watching Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? I think the time has come. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly No one knows its secrets. The army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The Ark, it is their Atanis. And it is something that man was not meant to disturb. 
It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on earth by those who are good, trust me, and those who are evil. I'll tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let it go. We have no time. If you still want the Ark, it has been loaded onto a truck for Cairo. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. back we're back from a monumental film <laughs> raiders of the lost ark or indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark if you insist on using its current title but it was released as raiders of the lost ark yes i'm curious do you feel as though the anxiety that you had about doing this movie has faded at all since the no. intro Okay. No. Okay, good. No. Me, me neither. <laughs> I will say that the way that I have coped with that is by putting a huge amount of time into research and trying to come up with things to talk about that will not be hopefully redundant for listeners who are really into this movie. Like there are stories that come up again and again and again. And, you know, I didn't just want to do that. So I did some pretty deep research. I spent a little extra time on the old plot summary. I think I'm doing the thing that I have done all my life, which is when I am anxious, try to hide in fact or science or academics or whatever it is and just Mm -hmm. be like, don't leave me in the frightening subjective. I want to make this, (laughs) you know, something objective that I can talk about. So I share with you ahead of these episodes that I try to prepare differently than you so that we have different things to talk Mm -hmm. about. And that was the case this time as well. And I kind of figured that that was the direction you were going to go. So (laughs) instead, would you like to see what I prepared? Oh my God, yes. It says here, Raiders, (laughs) good movie. (laughs) Accurate. Accurate. (laughs) Accurate. I didn't prepare anything at all because I also kind of figured that you would go the objective route and (laughs) I will be the subjective of bro this time. Okay. He's a subjective That's bro. right. Okay. I'm yeah. not lazy. I'm doing <laughs> He's leaving opposite. space for me to cope in my way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay, cool. No pressure on me then, huh? No, and it really shouldn't be because what I hope to do as the subjective voice, I guess, is kind of break you out of the objectiveness and try to steer some of those conversations towards not just the academic side, but like, how does it impact you and us and all that stuff? So yes, you're here to keep me emotionally honest. That's how I'm taking it. Okay, I'll accept that. (laughs) So I am as nervous because I am not sure even where to begin. Start at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And when you come to the end, (laughs) stop. I don't think we've ever done this before, but the easiest place to begin would be with the plot summary. Like, if you're interested... Let's do it. Since we have so much to talk about in this movie, the plot summary might be a nice intro to give us all the talking points in short form, and then we just go from there. 
I like it. Let's start there. If for no other reason than that it'll be a good warm up. <laughs> Get us yeah. going on it. Because it's not that I lack things to say. It's just that, ugh, I don't know. It's a big one. Okay, so let's start with the plot summary. Uh, I hope you like it. Okay. I'm sure I will. Okay. Everybody comfortable? Cell phone's off, right? Okay, here we go. 1936. A mountain that looks suspiciously like the Paramount logo rises from a tropical forest. A man in a hat treks through the jungle with a group of guides in search of a golden idol. He's clearly some kind of badass adventure hero because he manages to dodge the booby traps protecting it. But not his rival, Belloc, who is one step ahead, friends with the locals, and just as unconcerned about stealing cultural artifacts. Belloc takes the idol, but our hero manages to escape with his hide, and his hat, intact. Between Belloc and the hired pilot who flew him out, we've cobbled together his name, Indiana Jones. Professor of archaeology, expert on the occult, and uh, I just want to say it, obtainer of rare antiquities. Back in the States, we learn that our hero is actually an archaeology professor, and everyone in his class is hot for teacher, including one guy with an apple who is pissed about it. (laughs) Indy has been back for exactly one afternoon when a couple of suits from army intelligence drop in during his office hours. They tell him that the Nazis are looking for the Ark of the Covenant and have name-dropped his mentor, Abner Ravenwood, in a secret cable that also mentions the mysterious headpiece of the Staff of Ra. They want Indy to go after the Ark, and he can't resist, so he packs his gun and heads off to find Ravenwood in Nepal and get the headpiece. Sadly, Abner is dead, but his hard-drinking daughter Marion is very much alive and very much angry at Indy for some type of tryst that happened when she was a minor, which we're going to ignore for now. Marion still has the headpiece, and they make a deal, but a Gestapo agent and his thugs turn up in pursuit of it as well. The ensuing brawl starts a fire that heats the headpiece up to the exact temperature that will create a super well-defined, non-blistering burn scar, (laughs) and and Indian Marion manage to snatch it and escape from the burning building. With her home burned down and livelihood gone, Marion insists that until she can get her money, she's going to be along for the ride. Now partners, Indy and Marion head to Cairo to see how the Nazi excavation is going. Indy's good friend Sala is a digger and gives them the inside scoop. Belloc is there, and they have a partial replica of the headpiece that they're trying to use to find the location of the Ark. Also, there's a monkey! (laughs) (laughs) Cute! What an adorable creature! I did not have put that one in, so I just dropped it in there. No, it's fine. (laughs) Just caught me off guard. Also, there's a monkey. Yeah, like, oh, by the way, a monkey has turned up. For some reason. I mean, kind of. <laughs> yeah, but we don't see it. It's just like on the table. Right. But that's a pretty common occurrence, I would say. The mischievous Maybe. monkey that comes in and steals things, but then sticks around and you don't think too much of it until you realize <laughs> that this monkey has a nefarious purpose <laughs> and trainer. This monkey is on the payroll of the Gestapo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And this is a public service announcement. That is why you should always be skeptical of monkeys that come up to you and befriend you. It's because they might be Nazi monkeys. They might be spies. Okay, so they decide to do a little sightseeing in the market to chat about old times. But the monkey turns out to be a Nazi spy, and before long, the bad guys are chasing them. This turns into a brawl in the street where Indy's bullwhip comes in handy, and Marion knocks a guy out with a frying pan. But they get separated, and Marion is captured. While trying to get her back, Indy sees the truck he believes she's in crash and explode, so he goes off to drown his sorrows at a bar with the Nazi monkey. He has a drunken spat with Belloc, but Sala's kids come to rescue him before it escalates. Sala wants to take him to see an imam who can interpret the headpiece. They find out how long the staff needs to be, avoid some bad dates, and realize that the Nazis are, in fact, digging in the wrong place. 
They're digging in the wrong place. They're digging in the wrong place. Dave wanted me to do that twice. He felt very strongly about it. I tested this with him. I read it out. And he was like, you should say it again. (laughs) The next day, they sneak onto the dig and find the entrance to the map room unguarded. Left up top holding a rope, Sala gets shooed away by some soldiers while Indy finds the location of the Well of Souls. Though honestly, the location feels fairly obvious, as it is in the center of the big fancy building in a square altar-looking thing. So yeah, there. Sala returns with a makeshift rope using the old bedsheet and Nazi flag trick, and they head back through camp. I'm sorry, the old, the old bedsheet and Nazi flag trick that we've mm-hmm. all done, you know. We've all done that. You use what you got. You use what you got. Yeah. Indy ducks into a tent to avoid some guards and discovers that Marion is not dead. But if he frees her, the baddies will know something's up, so he promises to come back for her. Under the cover of late afternoon, Indy and Sala lead a group of... That always bothered me, that it was just, like, full daytime, and then it just, like, went into the afternoon and evening. (laughs) Okay. Under the cover of late afternoon, Indy and Sala lead a group of diggers to the site of the Well of Souls and uncover a large chamber full of massive Anubis statues and snakes! Why did it have to be snakes? And legless lizards. Thank you, by the way. (laughs) That was for you. I'm so happy that you included that, because... I hate being a nerd. Oh, it's a good thing. It's the good stuff. It's, good it's fine. <laughs> and I'm curious if the directors knew that because they were easier to work with than specific types of snakes. Well, also, the types of snakes that they use. Okay, we're getting into it. Go for it. The specific types of snakes that they use in the Well of Souls shouldn't really be biting much except for the King Cobra, which we have the famous scene. But... When you see pythons and boas and all that stuff, sometimes they're shown as biting, and that is really only ever going to be driven by food. If they feel like they are going to have a meal, they will bite at something. Otherwise, they won't. And that is the only way that they got those big snakes, which, yeah, do grow to 7, 8 feet long, or 9, 10, 11 feet long. The only way you're going to get them to bite and look like a dangerous venomous snake is by taunting them with food. And Mm. so I have a lot of ethical questions about how that scene was filmed. Interesting. To get them to behave that way. Yeah. Well, I don't have any good answers about the behavior part, but I do have some facts about how it was filmed and where they got snakes and stuff like that. Okay. Quickly, how many snakes, snakes and snake looking things would you estimate are in that scene? Specifically, the Well of Souls scene, yes. snakes and snake-like things, yeah. including legless lizards, that are on the ground. Well, yeah, just in the scene, yeah. How many snake and snake-esque things did they have to get for that scene? 612. <laughs> 9,000! What? They started off with 2,000, and Spielberg was like, this doesn't look like enough snakes, we're going to need at least 7,000 more. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Okay. So, oh, ha, ha, ha. there's no way to do that right. As yeah. a snake advocate, like, <laughs> there's no way to have that many snakes and do it right. Right. To where you're treating them all correctly. They're all getting what they need. They're coexisting in a good environment. Yeah. They no. actually had an investigation about that. 
a woman who was visiting for the day and then after went and like was like, I don't know about this and had the, this was filmed in London. So it was the Royal Society for the okay. Protection of Cruelty, blah, 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 RSPCA, but they did investigate. But yeah, so basically he was just like, we need a fuckload more snakes. And they just cleaned out all of the rentable snakes and pet stores in London, essentially, and just dropped it all on the floor. That's a little disturbing. It is disturbing. And there's actually a python was killed when a cobra bit it. So in case you're wondering about the interactions of these snakes, they were not kept separate enough. A cobra did bite a python and the python did die. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. If you know anything about snakes, like, yeah, well, duh. Not to have like a super downer break in the middle of the plot summary, but it's just an interesting thing. No, that is worth having a section in the middle of the plot summary because it literally resulted in the loss of an innocent life. And some people got bitten, but not that seriously. Yeah. So to lighten it up, another trivia fact about that scene is that the snake handler had to stand in for Marion's legs. And so Spielberg was like, hey, can we shave your legs? (laughs) (laughs) So like there are some shots that are just the snake handler's shaved legs and that's standing in for Marion. So nice. They got lucky that that gentleman's general shape approximated a petite woman. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Indy is not thrilled about the snakes. Mason is also not thrilled about the snakes. No, he's not. (laughs) But they climb down anyway and make their way to the ark. Meanwhile, Marion is trying to escape via tactical drinking and some light flirting with Belloc, who is clearly infatuated. You didn't laugh at the right place, by the way. I like my tactical drinking. Tactical? I mean, it's good. No, it's not that good. If you didn't laugh at it, it's not that good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Okay, I'm sorry. I I can be a real person. Um, hang on. Compose yourself. Meanwhile, Marion is trying to escape via tactical drinking and some light flirting with Belloc, who is clearly infatuated. He even has a fancy dress for her to wear. What luck! Belloc might be a sucker, but his Nazi friends are not. The Gestapo guy from Nepal is back with a fresh batch of henchmen, and they decide to get information from her the hard way. Indy and Sala find the Ark and start hauling it out of the hole, but are spotted. Belloc and the Nazis arrive just in time to grab it and Sala, and then dump Marion down the hole with Indy. They manage to escape fairly quickly, which is honestly miraculous, given all the snakes and knocking things over that they do. They have a little accident with an airplane and some gasoline, and then find out that the Ark is being loaded onto a truck. Indy, Indy, we have no time. If you still want the Ark, it is being loaded onto a truck for Cairo. Truck? What truck? Indy goes after it on horseback, taking out a dozen guys and a few bystanders to get to the Ark, then meets Sala and Marion back in Cairo to load it up on a ship. After saying goodbye to Sala, they head out with the very stylish Captain Katanga, and Marion gets another free dress. They relax in a cabin. Deep in the hole, the Ark is driving the mice insane. I learned something about that, by the way. Oh, I'm very curious, because we both talked about it. Yeah. So, the thing with that mouse, you were wondering during our watch for the movie, how did they get that mouse to do that? Yep, because it felt like some type of cruel treatment. It wasn't, luckily. That's good. But not luckily for the mouse. So Uh (laughs) basically, they just caught it on camera doing that. And they were like, oh, that works. And then they found out later that it had a brain tumor. Oh. So that was just, unfortunately, a sick mouse, which is sad. I don't know how to feel about that. But it worked really well for the movie. They didn't do it to the mouse. Yeah. Also, pretty sure it was a rat, not a mouse. How has this gone so sad so early and all about animal cruelty? we're so bad at this. (laughs) What are we doing? Who let us have a podcast? Okay, the next day, 
The Nazis catch up in a U-boat and grab Marion and the Ark, but Indy manages to evade them and then hitch a ride on their periscope all the way to an... This is true, by the way. They shot that, and then they cut it out. Hitch a ride on their periscope all the way to an island where they plan to open the Ark and test its power. He sneaks onto the island and has them dead to rights with a rocket launcher, but can't bring himself to blow up the Ark, even to save himself and Marion. So our heroes get tied to a pole, while Belloc dresses up like a Hebrew priest to open the damn thing. They pop the top and it's full of sand, and what I sincerely hope are the ghosts of ancient Jews, who scare the crap out of and then kill a bunch of the Fuhrer's finest. Indy and Marion wisely keep their eyes shut to avoid the wrath of God, but everyone else is melted, imploded, exploded, perforated, and then sucked up into the sky in a pillar of fire. Good riddance. Back in Washington, D.C., the Army intelligence guys have commandeered the Ark. They ensure Indy that the Ark is safe and top men, capital letters, top men. The Ark is a source of unspeakable power and it has to be researched. And it will be, I assure you, Dr. Brody, Dr. Jones, we have top men working on it right now. Who? Top men. Are studying it, which nobody believes. Marion consoles him with a drink. It's her love language, also her fight language. And we see that the Ark has been carefully tucked away, in the largest warehouse known to man, with what looks like millions of other precious artifacts, never to be seen again. The end. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about with this movie is sort of how it fits in to the greater narrative and lore of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Okay. So obviously both of those guys are among America's most beloved directors. We obviously know that they know each other and their collaborations have been huge for film, Mm -hmm. for people of our generation. This is actually the first time they collaborated, though, on a movie. They'd been friends for 11 years at this point. George Lucas actually had the idea for this in the early 70s, and he started developing it, but then he shifted his focus to working on Star Wars. And it was when A New Hope was just about to open. This is apparently a tradition that he has had, which is just going on vacation to get away from everything when a movie of his opens. Hmm. So he was in Hawaii on a beach and Steven Spielberg was actually also there. So they were just hanging out on the beach together. And of course, they've been friends for a long time at this point. And Spielberg says that he's always wanted to direct a Bond film. And George Lucas says, you know what? Actually, I have a much better idea. And he pitched this, an adventure movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And apparently this conversation happened while they were making a sandcastle together, which is pretty adorable. (laughs) That is. Were they seven at the time? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) No, they were adults? Oh, okay, Yeah, they were adults. It was 1977. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty cute. But then after that trip, they got together and developed a script with Lawrence Kasdan. The original story was developed by, of course, George Lucas, as well as Philip Kaufman. And Philip Kaufman is the one who contributed the idea of the Ark. So Mm. pretty core to it. I think that a lot of what sold Spielberg on this was just that he would have so much fun making it. Yeah. Oh, so one thing that I should say super early on, if you as a listener, any listeners and you as Mason (laughs) have any interest at all in learning more about this movie, I extremely highly suggest go on YouTube and search Shooting Raiders of the Lost Ark with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. This documentary is probably also elsewhere. The actual title of it is The Making of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was a 1981 making of feature. And very underviewed on YouTube. I looked it up as well, and it has flown under the radar for many years, I think. Maybe it was distributed in other ways, but it is available on YouTube and highly recommend 
Look it is it so good. Yeah. So the title that I gave is just the one that I watched. I'm sure there are other versions of it, but it should be about an hour long. And it's really like a true making of featurette or mini documentary or whatever. It's not like the ones now where it's sort of half about convincing you to see the movie or now that you have seen it, mm-hmm. convincing you to watch it again, buy another ticket. It is very much filmed during the actual making. There are lots and lots of shots of Spielberg directing Karen Allen, of them executing stunts, of them talking about what they're doing on the day that they're doing it. It is so fascinating. And so a lot of what I learned that's new to me as of this recording came from that. So highly recommend. It's an extremely well-spent hour. And that's one of the things that Spielberg said during that was, I just wanted to make this so I can enjoy it. Yeah. And... It's worth calling out that we were talking in the first section about which Indiana Jones movie is our favorite. Mm-hmm. And I think we both agree that this one's our favorite. Mm-hmm. This one's the best one, I think. It's also the only one that was added to the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Yep. It is also the only one nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. And it's the one that Spielberg says that he considers the most perfect film of the series. Yeah. And he has said that he never wanted to modify it or change anything about it. So I think we're not the only ones. I feel like a lot of that comes down to the novelty of it, but also how we are introduced to the characters. I think you and I both picked up on the fact that this is more like a serialized comic or Mm -hmm. radio show or noir film or whatever you want to call it. But the way that we're introduced to these characters is so incredible that you can't really reclaim that in any of the subsequent films. Yeah. The sequels are great for what they are, but this is our intro to the series with new characters, and we get to meet them as new characters, and that mm-hmm. means that we see all of their imperfections and what's bringing <laughs> them into the story. We meet the characters not through the lens of a bunch of similar stories, because these types of movies had kind of stopped being made for a little while. Yeah. It felt fresh because it had been 40, 50 years. Yeah. And to us, as modern viewers, it feels incredibly iconic, and it feels inevitable that it is what it is, and it was as successful as it is. But that definitely wasn't the case at the time. I mean, this type of story, like you mentioned, came from all of those sources, but I think especially from those Saturday matinee cliffhanger type movies. Mm. And I actually watched a couple of those after... Oh, really? Yeah, just for fun. So I watched 1933's Jungle Bride, and then I watched, I think also from 33, one called The Sphinx. (laughs) And they were so much fun. And I did fall asleep toward the end of The Sphinx, but only because I was really tired. But the same thing, that freshness, that made it such a hit, that makes it so iconic to us today, and yes, I'm using the I word a bunch, is actually also the same thing that I think made it difficult to get made. So Mm. this movie was turned down, even with Lucas and Spielberg, who maybe, okay, not as massive, huge forces as they are now, but certainly known quantities. Oh, for sure. This movie was turned down by every studio in Hollywood. And Paramount only agreed to do it after significant persuasion. (laughs) And this is interesting. So one thing that popped out to me, we grew up in the era of Michael Eisner Disney. So like mm-hmm. I remember the wonderful world of Disney or whatever it was mm-hmm. with the little Michael Eisner talking head at the beginning of it weekly or whatever it was when we were kids. So I saw like, oh, Michael Eisner of Paramount said it was the most perfect script you'd ever read. And I was like, wait, that Michael Eisner? And yes. So he was a part of getting this produced. It was not to the studios at that time an obvious choice. 
Which I think is interesting because you and I both picked up on the fact that this has many noir elements, many Mm -hmm. comic serial elements. If this had been a graphic novel first, I don't think I would be surprised. Yeah. All of the things that translate from a graphic novel into a movie are here. Many of the elements that exist in noir films exist here. I don't feel like this is a risk really at all. Yeah. And yet there was some hesitation on the production side. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? I mean, I think to them it just felt too throwback. Hmm. Maybe it felt gimmicky to them. I don't know. Because okay. they would have been getting this approved in the late 70s. You know, it's set in 1936. It's using a style of film that was very popular around that time. Mm-hmm. The lighting is, for me, one of those especially noir things. I mean, I can only guess that they did not see how much it would be like a reinvigoration of something that people truly loved at the time. Mm. Serialized adventure. A character that you can watch overcome again and again. I don't think they were thinking about that so much as, is this just sort of like a remake of an old genre that people are past? I don't know. And not just a reinvigoration of something that could potentially be popular in the modern era, but that is timeless. Mm -hmm. I feel like... In order to be able to spot something that will exist for all time and kind of interest the zeitgeist is a special thing. And yeah, I don't want to say that Eisner didn't have that capability, but that with hindsight being 2020, mm-hmm. it would have been very easy for somebody to say, oh, yeah, of course, that's going to play well with audiences, not just now, but well, well, well into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, generations of people. Yeah. Like you said, in hindsight, it's easy to break down why it was successful. But at the yeah. time, they did not anticipate those same things. Yep. You know, one thing that did make it work very well was actually something that we don't often see or even really get to talk about, which is script editing. Mm. So the first draft of the script is insane. It's like three whole movies smashed together. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about that. The first draft of the script included elements that were used in all three films. So basically what they did was they cut down this massive, crazy script and said, okay, we're going to take this whole China sequence, including a bunch of the specific gags that I'll tell you in a sec, and break that out into a second movie. Well, I shouldn't say that they did that consciously at the time. What they did do, though, is when it was time to make another movie, they just use all the same shit. (laughs) Part of the original script for Raiders was set in China. It included that gag of hiding from bullets behind a rolling gong. It included jumping out of a plane onto an inflatable raft. It included a mine cart system that they used to escape. Donovan in The Last Crusade is a character that was in the original script. So basically, the roots of all three movies were in the original draft of Raiders. Wow. And they edited it down to remove extraneous characters, to trim down the number of locations. I think they made some very smart choices because it doesn't feel sparse at all as a movie. So when you think about how much else they tried to shoehorn in, (laughs) or they could have tried to shoehorn in from the script, they just were like, you know what? Too complicated. We're going to pare it down and let the action really sing. And they did. So I think that's a big part of it. And I know that we both have some experience with George Lucas, but... For Kaufman and Kazan, where do their hands show most? Because I feel like I can isolate the Lucas parts, but I can't really tell where the other influences show up. 
Yeah. Philip Kaufman, I don't know as much about. So I can say he's the one who contributed the arc and he was involved in the story development. I don't know as much about his career before or after this. But Lawrence Kasdan certainly was a longtime collaborator who also worked on the Star Wars movies, etc. So he worked with Lucas a lot. Why the hell are we stopping? For our listeners, we have just had, I don't know, possibly a half hour conversation about Marion, the age that she was when she and Indy had a relationship, what the possible nature of that would have been, the conversations that Lawrence Kasdan and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg had planning those things, what they thought was appropriate and absolutely was not. Yeah, that kind of feels like a mini-sode in and of itself. (laughs) It sure does. Especially right around the point that we started branching off into authorial intent and sort of the principles of storytelling and who owns characters. Yep. So I wouldn't want anyone to think that we have not addressed that issue. In fact, we have addressed it so much that we're going to be releasing it as a very special episode of Adventurelings. (laughs) Yep. And now back to the fun stuff. (laughs) Now back to your regularly scheduled program. I don't know about you, but I would like to talk a little bit about casting. Okay. (laughs) I'm all... For it. I'm curious what you have prepared. Yes. Well, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on it because I know it can get boring listing like all the people, blah, 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 who might have tried out for it. But what I will say is they really didn't want to go with Harrison Ford because hmm. of he had just been cast in American Graffiti. He had just been in Star Wars. The first one had just come out. Right. Lots of Lucas things. Exactly. So George Lucas was very concerned that if he cast him in this then he would kind of get stuck as, like, the guy who loves Harrison Ford. And so they looked and looked and looked and looked and looked. They tested Tim Matheson, Peter Coyote, John Shea, Tom Selleck. They were super into Tom Selleck and actually tried to hire him. They did costume tests. They had him test with Karen Allen. Like, it was gonna be Tom Selleck. The way that they put it was that he, quote, blew them away. But... He couldn't do it because Magnum P.I. enforced his contract and wouldn't let him out to shoot the movie, which turned out to be kind of sad and hilarious because Magnum P.I. had to put off the filming of their first episode because of a writer's strike. So he could have filmed it, but just wasn't allowed to. I would have loved to be in that audition to Mm -hmm. understand how Tom Selleck blew them away as... Indiana Jones when we have Harrison Ford <laughs> I know, as right? Indiana Jones now. There's some footage of him oh, in those screen is? tests. Yeah. <gasps> and he does look good. He looks good. I will admit it. And also I found one mention of Sam Neill, which I'm only including just because we love Sam Neill and he's been on the show already. Well, his characters mm-hmm. have been on the show twice already. But what ultimately happened was they were down to three weeks before shooting. Spielberg had just seen Empire and... Okay called George Lucas and was like, dude, (laughs) he is Indiana Jones. Like, Mm -hmm. it is him. And George Lucas was like, fine, yes, he is. I mean, he is. So we're going to have to do it. So they cast him or did the final, like, decided that it was okay to cast him three weeks before. Oh, no. One of the greatest actors of our time (laughs) is also Indiana Jones. He was also Han Solo. He was also one of the stars in my movie, American Graffiti. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So I think in a way we got lucky just because George Lucas was a little too worried about... I mean, I don't want to say about his reputation. It's just more... I mean, it's a valid thing to think about, but at the end of the day, you have to cast the best person. And if the best person is fucking Harrison Ford, you do it. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's happened to us a few times in this podcast already, where 
the person that is best for the job is also somebody that you've worked with extensively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing when you have found a gem, especially like a generational actor that can work with you and knows your style when they understand your vision and are able to put themselves into your characters. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I understand the hesitation of putting somebody in like three consecutive films, whatever. But Harrison Ford has that range and has the ability to mold themselves into each of those roles independently. Like it's not that you're playing the same character three times in three different movies. He has proven himself to be somebody that can adapt themselves to very complex roles. Yeah. I mean, the casting process for Marion was a lot more traditional, just in that apparently Spielberg initially wanted the role for his girlfriend at the time, Amy Irving. They tested Sean Young, a woman whose name I have never heard and am obsessed with now, Stephanie Zimbalist. Ooh. Barbara Hershey was considered. Deborah Winger actually turned it down. They cast Karen Allen based on Animal House. Which I actually watched recently and I was like, oh shit, Karen Allen, I forgot she was in this. But it was that sort of comedy capability and just her character in that that got her cast in this. I did want to call out though two things that I thought were funny. Paul Freeman, who played Belloc, is English. This whole time, it didn't even occur to me that he might not be French. And I'm not saying that the accent is so great. It's just that I've been hearing him in my head as like French guy number one since I was a child and it did not occur to me that he wasn't French. Right. The guy who plays the imam, if you can guess what country he's from, I will give you a million dollars. Hang on. Remind me the scene. Come, look, look here. What is it? This is a warning not to disturb the Ark of the Covenant. What about the height of the staff, though? Did Bella get it off of here? Yes, it is here. This means six kadam height. About 72 inches. Wait! And take back one kadam to honor the Hebrew god whose ark this is. When they go to get the old man to interpret the headpiece. Okay. I assumed he was a Jewish scholar or something, but he's credited as an imam. Okay, yeah, I know who you're talking about. The person that's like, yes, it's six meters on this side, but then remove one. Take back one kadam. A million dollars. Yes. I don't have it. Spoiler. But I will owe you $1 million if you can guess where he's from. I'm sorry that this is taking a while. A million dollars is a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) It's an imaginary million dollars if that makes you feel any better. He's from Djibouti. Nope. Norway. (laughs) His name is Tuti Limkow and he's from Oslo. (laughs) My million dollars. (laughs) It's always going to be a hard one. Mm -hmm. I did bet you my entire earthly possessions recently. And I didn't win that either. No. (laughs) We only go high stakes on the hard questions. Correct. You know, one thing you said earlier that I just remembered was you were talking about how if it had been a graphic novel, that wouldn't have surprised you at all. Mm -hmm. And that reminded me of something that came up actually in that making of documentary. There is a really cool shot or a sequence of Steven Spielberg sitting down with the actors and flipping through the storyboards for the day. This movie Mm. was super heavily storyboarded. So he is going shot, 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 shot to show them like what is in his head. And I thought that was kind of a cool tie in with what you were saying. Like in a way, 
they did sort of do that, and then they used that really heavily, not just to plan their shots on the production side, but to show the actors, like, the vibe they were going for. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of the shots that most feels like either an old war movie or a graphic novel or whatever it is, is the shot of the snake going through the Pete Toshu. Like, I just feel like that shot specifically is so reminiscent of those old movies. Yeah. I can see that as a storyboard panel 100%. right? Yeah. Exactly. And then there's a shot, too, with, like, the lightning on the face of the Anubis statue when they're looking down the hole, stuff like Mm -hmm. that. It feels so noir, so storyboarded, or however you want to look at it. I guess all I'm really trying to say is that those are very clear memorable images that really stick with you. So however they planned it or whatever your reference point is, they're sticky. Mm -hmm. Sticky shots. What do you think made them sticky, though? Composition, lighting. I think, honestly, a lot of it comes down to the principles of design. Okay. Contrast the content of it as well, like a snake crawling through the toe of a peep toe shoe. And then when you compose that shot well, and it's not just a throwaway, it's very featured. I think, really, it just comes down to craft. Yeah. So I really love that. I just realized, though, we have barely talked about stunts. Well, we've barely talked about a lot of things. (laughs) And I think in the front half, we were like, yeah, this could be a six-part series. Jesus Christ. Giving Lance a lot to cut from. I can't afford that level of (laughs) vanity. No. So let's talk about stunts for a second. So the stunts in this, obviously, there are one million that we could talk about. Yep. There are so many amazing stunts. I did lots of Googling. I looked up who specifically did the stunt writing. I looked up all kinds of things. But the one that probably will be fun for people to hear about, the truck stunt, Mm -hmm. where, you know, he's chasing down the arc. He goes on horseback. He gets onto the truck. He is hanging onto the front and pulls the grill down. And then he's going under the truck. We noticed during our watch of the film that there is a rut there. Yep. So they did dig that ditch for the stuntman. Mm-hmm. And they raised the truck up. But even with those two things, there was still only two inches of clearance. Wow. They were going 25 miles an hour, but they mm-hmm. also shot it at 20 frames per second to make it look faster. Okay. So the part where he's actually going under the truck was a stuntman, but Harrison Ford did do some shots dragging behind and ended up with badly bruised ribs. But Mm -hmm. this stunt, and this is something I never realized, is actually a callback to a classic stagecoach stunt in John Ford's 1939 stagecoach. Really? Yes. This is something they did in stagecoach, and it is something that the stuntman who performed it had done like the month before with a stagecoach for another movie. (laughs) Huh. Yeah, so very impressive that they managed to do it without anyone being seriously injured because two inches is not a lot of clearance. Nope. But it looks so good. I'm just glad that they were able to do it and that nobody died. It does. And I mean, I had only noticed the rut that they had dug for him on what, maybe the eighth or the ninth mm-hmm. yeah. viewing of this. So it works so well that you have no idea that they made special provisions for the stunt because it's so fluid. Yeah, it is. It's very fluid. One of the first things that I brought up after we did the plot summary was just this idea of like where this falls in the greater legend of Lucas and Spielberg Mm -hmm. and stuff around that. So this is another thing I never knew. So at the time that they filmed this movie... Harrison Ford was married to a woman named Melissa Matheson. Mm -hmm. She and Steven Spielberg were working on a script during shooting breaks. You're smiling. You know this one, huh? I'm smiling because I do know that the script that they were working on eventually turned into 
E.T., the extraterrestrial. Exactly. And I just love that detail so much. I feel like <sighs> this movie has this sort of maelstrom of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg shit. Yeah. They filmed it in between Empire and Return of the Jedi. They decided to make it on the beach after releasing the first Star Wars movie. They had known each other forever. They were spitballing about stuff they'd like to make. Then you have Steven Spielberg working on the script for E.T. You have George Lucas planning stuff for his next Star Wars movie. It's just like this took place right in the sweet spot of so much of their stuff that we love with people they worked with on those other things. Lawrence Kasdan's working on Star Wars. Harrison Ford is working on Star Wars. It's almost like film camp. Yeah. (laughs) You know? I want to say that this is a result of kind of the golden age of directing and writing. But it's almost further than that. It's like, this is the 24 karat gold era of (laughs) writing and directing, where we got this really incredible intersection of all of these incredible people who have their own vision that were somehow able to put them together into a cohesive thing. Like, that's special. It's special special that... People who are independently talented are able to put together their independently incredible things into something that becomes more than the sum of its parts. That's impressive. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, too, is that this era of directors are among the first people to get to make their own home movies. Mm. There have been sort of versions of home movie cameras for a long time, but this generation of directors is one of the first that really got to start making these little home movies of their childhood sort of fantasies when they were young. J.J. Abrams would later go on to make a movie that I absolutely love called Super 8. The first Super 8 camera, I believe, came out in 1965. So these guys were able to start playing with this stuff young. And I do think that's part of where we get this sort of like you said, you know, 24 karat magic of this generation. Yeah, I mean, how cool is that, though, that any generation can embrace the technology that is novel and turn it into something revolutionary? Yeah. I think that's not just limited to this generation, the Super 8 generation, but it could be expanded to the drone generation, you know, Mm -hmm. the AI generation, the whatever generation, and say, you guys can define what the next generation of filmmaking looks like. That Mm -hmm. nobody has seen what that style of filmmaking looks like yet. And you can be the ones to pioneer it. That's so encouraging for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw these same people embrace new technology. I mean, George Lucas switching over to digital, going into digital effects for films. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we've talked about the great sort of Lucasfilm documentary series that's on Disney Plus. But like that sort of, yeah, let's try it. Let's embrace the new technology. Let's see what we can do. Attitude is very big with these guys. And obviously, they've given us movies that we adore and that have lasted for several generations now. Absolutely. You know, one scene that I really love that we haven't talked about, and that actually wasn't in my plot summer either but when we first meet marion mm-hmm. that drinking contest at her bar in nepal mm-hmm. one thing that i loved from that documentary is spielberg giving direction to the extras in nepal so this is of course context that we don't have from the movie itself and i just wanted to share it because i think listeners would really love it mm-hmm. so he is telling these extras 
that they're coming to this drinking contest every Friday night. It's like bingo for the town and everyone comes to watch and they save up their money all week and then they will either lose it or win in this drinking contest against Marion. So the way that he imagined this all was like, this is the entertainment for the town. Every week somebody comes and tries to beat Marion in a drinking contest. <laughs> and I just sort of love that. I thought it was adorable. It's very bad for her liver, but it's a cute backstory. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, because I think we were also trying to figure that out in the moment of what has led (laughs) to this point, because everybody is crowding around here. And then after the contest is over, we see Marion kind of returning to form. And we're like, oh, yeah, okay, she wasn't really going that hard. But why were people betting against her? And it makes so much more sense knowing that, like, this is the weekly thing. Like, maybe this is the week that she falls, that she cracks. (laughs) That's really funny. Can this guy here take her down or not, you know? One thing that I thought was tremendously fun, just total trivia fact that has very little to do, actually, with the movie even. A prototype for the arc ended up on Antiques Roadshow. Isn't that crazy? (gasps) I know, What did it sell for? Okay, backstory for listeners... Antiques Roadshow, massive part of our childhood for whatever reason. (laughs) Yeah, I need to go find that episode and watch it because I would just love that so much. But this is just something that I found kind of later today as I was getting ready. So the prototype ended up on Antiques Roadshow. The guy who brought it in, his dad did pyrotechnical work for the movie. And then his family just had it at their house and they kept blankets in it for decades. Wow. (laughs) And so he brought it in. He was like, I don't know why we have this. My dad said he worked on Raiders. And they were like, holy shit. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. I almost want to stop the podcast to figure this out because that's (laughs) so cool. (laughs) It is. All right. While you Google, I actually think this might be, I hesitate to say it, my favorite fact that I have learned about this movie. Interesting. Okay. So the name of Indiana Jones comes from... Marsha Lucas's dog. She had a Malamute named Indiana. And what did you find, Junior? Junior? Dad? Please, what does it always mean? This this Junior. That's his name. Henry Jones Junior. Like Indiana. We named the dog Indiana. Maybe go home now, please. The dog? <laughs> you are named after the dog. <laughs> Got a lot of fond memories of that dog. Which is in itself not that interesting. It's just kind of cool. But Indiana the Malamute has given us so much because this is also the dog that inspired Chewbacca because George Lucas saw his wife coming home and the dog was sitting in the front seat next to her. And George Lucas thought that looks like a co-pilot. So (laughs) Indiana the Malamute gave us both Chewbacca and the name of Indiana Jones. And I love that. Well played dog. Well played dog. Hall of Fame dog right there. I don't know if this is a hot take. I don't know what kind of take this is. For a long time, I believed that George Lucas was one of the luckiest humans to ever exist. Possibly. Just because it felt like he stumbled into success everywhere he went. (laughs) And the documentaries that I was watching made him out to be somebody that was just in the right place at the right time and had an idea But everybody else fleshed out the idea to make him look like somebody way ahead of his time. Yeah. But there's a point of knowing about George Lucas where you feel that way. And then there's just an overwhelming amount of evidence to say, no, no, 
He was really good. He knows how to spot a good idea. He knows how to spot a really good idea and develop it. And even if he personally doesn't know how to develop it, he knows how to put the right people in place around him Mm -hmm. to make that into a movie. Mm -hmm. In a special movie. Like, look at his track record. It's very few misses. Lots of hits, very few misses. The notable misses... uh, (laughs) Minisode. Minisode. Whole other thing. (laughs) A whole minisode just about George Lucas's horrible misses. Whole thing. (laughs) But... At the same time, like, you can't deny his contributions. Yeah. I feel like when I think about him, like you've already said, having, identifying a good idea, the confidence to develop the ideas with the purity of really standing by what he thinks is going to be good, seeing other people's capacity to do those special things as well. Mm -hmm. We might need to have a conversation with him about children and ages and stuff yeah. like that. But we're just going to leave that for now because that's the mini-sode. Hard miss. Hard miss. Hard mini-sode that. miss. Yep. One thing you were looking for a moment ago is a dollar amount on stuff. In 1999, Christie's Auction House sold Indiana Jones's kangaroo hide bullwhip. Do you want to guess for how much? In 1989? 99. Oh, 99. In 99 was a while ago. I'm pretty familiar with auction prices now. 99 was a long (laughs) time ago, though. Really? Like, I don't feel like I am at all. That's definitely an expertise that you have that I don't. (laughs) What could it cost, Michael? $10? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I love that so much. RIP Jessica Walter, I love you. We're big Arrested Development fans here. Yeah. 99, the bullwhip from Raiders. $260,000. No, it was actually just $43,000. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm often surprised by stuff like that because I'm like, it's so iconic. It must be so much money. But I guess at the end of the day, how much money are you going to pay for just a bullwhip? Oh. I don't know. I feel like maybe you're not realizing how many rich people there are with disposable cash. I mean, yeah, but I'm also telling you how much it actually sold for. So there's, yeah, I mean, I don't know. 99 was a very different time. Okay. How much do you think that the... 1981 Raiders Lost Ark prototype was valued at not auctioned for, but like the range that it was given from Antiques oh, Roadshow. Ninety-five to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Eighty to one twenty. Okay, see, I went over too because yeah. of the same thing, but still eighty to one twenty. I wasn't that bad off. I no, you weren't. You were you were much better than me. I was like, you know what? I bet they gave it a really high ceiling because who knows? But then again, I forgot a detail, which is that when they were looking at it, they were like, this is made out of picture frames and gold spray paint. Yeah, it really is. So, yeah. I mean, it literally is. It's like hot glue (laughs) that has been spray painted gold. Yeah. But if I had that type of money, maybe Maybe I'd own a prototype Lost Ark and Bullwhip. I don't know. Oh, my God. You know what I just remembered, too, is... Do you remember when we were children, where did you get that? You had a bullwhip and we practiced with it. We tried to snap it. I still do. You still do. Where did that come from? Did mom give that to you? Did dad? It came from the Amish, actually. It came from the Amish. Okay. I'm not kidding. Do tell. Okay. Our family vacations were different. Uh Uh-huh. And at one point we went to Amish country and found this like leather place, (laughs) leather workshop. And I was able to find a braided whip with a wooden handle 
the wooden handle actually rotates so mm-hmm. it stays in your hand so that no matter how you whip it, the handle is rotated to your body and then there's a metal piece that goes through it that attaches to the braided whip. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but it was 100% in Amish shop. It was the same time that we tasted sorghum for the first time. Do you remember <laughs> tasting... Like little drops or something? No, uh, like it was... Candies? We got to chew Candy? on... No, God. ...actual sorghum stalks. I don't remember. Anyway, I'll raid my memory for that later. Okay. But, so Mason <laughs> got... <laughs> So Mason had a bowl. Well, I guess we, I mean, you owned it, but like we played with that shit. I still have it and I practice with it and I can still crack it hundred percent. I can crack it a little bit, but you've obviously had it. So I'm out of practice. Anyway, I had forgotten about that until that moment. Okay. Three last trivia facts. Okay. Indy's line to Marion when they're on the ship. It's not the years, it's the mileage. Mm-hmm. Not the man I knew 10 years ago. It's not the years. It's the mileage. That was Harrison Ford ad-lib, so he deserves the credit for that one. Good quote. I mean, honestly, one of the best lines in any movie of this type, and it was just him on the fly, and I love that so much. R2-D2 and C-3PO appear in the hieroglyphics on the wall in the Well of Souls. I confirmed that personally. It's kind of adorable, actually. As did I. Yep. Yep. And here's the last one. During the truck chase... Producers limited the amount of on-screen blood, whatever that means. I don't know if they were trying to save on production costs or if they just were like, you know what, we're going to do a lot of squibs, whatever. So they used fine red dust instead of liquid fake blood Hmm. for the squibs. However, unfortunately, the only red dust available, and most of the stuff that's in Egypt was shot in Tunisia, the only red dust available for the squibs was cayenne pepper. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Oh, no. The squib's going off. It's literally just cayenne pepper and stunt people being like, ah! (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's so mean. (laughs) But they specifically were like, this caused a lot of suffering for the stunt crew. And of course, yeah, like you have cayenne pepper flying around in the air. (laughs) It's also, by the way, a million degrees. So more literally, Tunisia stood in for Egypt in the Tunisian desert. It was 130 degrees in the sun and 120 in the shade. 600 extras, plus main cast and crew, consumed 5,000 gallons of water a day on location. So mm-hmm. I checked to see what this was relative to just normal water usage. And apparently the average person uses 3,000 gallons of water a month for bathing, cooking, washing, recreation, and watering plants. So including all of that shit, a single person uses 3,000 gallons of water a month. And they went through 5,000 a day. Which I guess when you look at the number of people and how hot it was, isn't that shocking. Mm-hmm. But when you Google 5,000 gallon tank <laughs> and you think about using that every day, it is a lot of water to be shipped. Oh, for there. sure. Yeah. So that's about all the trivia facts I've got, man. I okay. am honestly kind of sad a little bit. Obviously, we had a lot of emotions, a lot of anxiety going into this episode. But it's also our season finale, you know? It's our last episode of this season. And I am sad to end it, but dragging it out with more trivia facts is probably not the way to go if we want to keep any listeners. <laughs> I agree. Well, as you said, I do think we could keep talking about this for an eternity, maybe. <laughs> However, yes. all good things must come to an end. And that includes this season. This is our season finale. Yes. We've completed our first 12-episode run. We thank everybody that has been along for the journey. It's been so fun for us, and we hope it's been fun for you as well. And we will be back 
not just for season two, we will have extras between seasons, get to know us type episodes, and what other types of things, Emily? Yeah, I mean, I think also there's a lot of stuff I'd like to do topically, just like digging into a specific topic and looking at a bunch of different movies. I also think it would be fun to throw a few non-adventure-y type of things into the mix. Okay. You know, if you want to do like a... I'm here for it. Yeah, maybe we'll just pick a movie that we love for different reasons. I think if we find some interview candidates, possibly. So I've got a lot of plans, secret plans, very secret plans. You know, we're already planning season two. We don't intend to take a super, super long break. But all of this will appear on our socials and on the website. So keep up with us and our sort of semi-unstructured interseason content on our Instagram at The Adventurelings, on our website at theadventurelings.com. We have a lot of episode-specific stuff, and I am working on getting accessible transcripts of everything live for anyone who does not listen but would still like to consume the content of the podcast. So if you have any deaf or hearing impaired friends, family, etc., I am working on that. And of course, if you have any suggestions for season two, season three, season four, please, please let it be known by emailing us at theadventurelings at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Anything that you'd like us to talk about or do less of, let us know. I personally want to thank you, Emily, for all of the work that you've put into this season. It has just been a blast and such a wonderful time getting to talk to you. And I mean, even though we've known each other for 35 <laughs> years, years <laughs> um, yeah. I still learn new things about you through movies. And like, that's a really oh, powerful medium. Me too. One of the things that I would encourage most in the off season, and for any listeners that have followed us through this journey, is just watch these movies with other people. It gives you a window, not only into yourself and how you react to it, but into others and how you can interface with them best. So I think watching movies with other people is a very, very powerful way of getting to know people better. So yeah, and them getting to know you better based on what you recommend. Absolutely. I mean, I've missed the social aspect of watching movies. I think that's something that went away with COVID. And, you know, we grew up doing that. So like, for me, this chance to return to the social part of it, but also with you with family, you know, I I think we've always kind of bonded over movies. And it's been really fun. So like Mason said, if you have a sibling that you actually like, for example, you know, why not? (laughs) (laughs) First of all, feel free to share the podcast with them. But more importantly, hang out, watch a movie, whether it's by Zoom or whether it's in person or whether it's just you both watch it and then you talk about it. It is a great way to bond. So I agree. (laughs) But until next time, we are the Adventurelings. And thank you so much for joining us. And we're looking forward to talking to you next season. Sounds good. Emily, I love you. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) I love you too. I'll talk to you soon as well. I need a break. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Now I feel bad. <laughs> Hang on. Let's record like five different takes of us laughing at each other's jokes. <laughs> <laughs> what are these faces you're making? <laughs> okay, I'm going to start that over because I got excited because I actually like one of my jokes in this one and that's so dorky. <laughs> If you had just recognized it as funny the first time, we wouldn't have an issue. <laughs> what? Stop laughing at me! What is it? You said the momentous moment. <laughs> oh my god.
God, you're right. Uh, why don't you give it a try? Let's hear your version, Mr. Okay. Mr. I'm so perfect and I don't hey, use redundant whoa, words. Whoa, Hey, nobody <laughs> said that. <laughs> We're back from our monumentous monument of... of I don't know. Steven Spielberg in a square altar... Hold on, fucking hell. Okay. It's a medical condition. I burped. You did. Let's talk about it some more. Okay. Are you just fucking with me? <laughs> Russell. <laughs> That's why I felt like I had to mention that right there. <laughs>